Hello there and welcome to Thinking is Cool, the show designed to make your next conversation better than your last, even if that conversation happens in the comments section. My name is Kinsey Grant and I am the host of this show and famously the sometimes proud owner of one of those useless journalism degrees. My freshman year of college, which was eight years ago, I was forced to memorize the First Amendment for a grade in my Intro to Communications class. So to celebrate that, I'm going to see if I've still got it. Okay, here we go. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble to petition the government for redress of grievances? It's something like that. (laughs) But anyway, I might not be able to perfectly recite the earliest words of this country's Bill of Rights, but I can do this. I can question the very integrity of those early words in the Bill of Rights. More specifically, the idea of freedom of speech. Now, even if you were not a journalism major who struggled through journalism law junior year spring, you know how much this country loves to talk about the First Amendment, which entitles us Americans to the freedom of religion, freedom of press, the freedom to peacefully protest, and the freedom to petition our government if and when it goes astray. But arguably the most important freedom handed to us by the First Amendment is the freedom of speech. It is that freedom, the freedom of speech, that allows us to disagree, to learn and share, to voice once unspoken thoughts, to engineer a more verbally and intellectually diverse world. But it's also in no small part to blame for our unbelievable penchant for, well, actually... And for that reason, it has limits. Freedom of speech is not an absolute freedom, nor should it be, but most of the lines drawn in the sand were drawn centuries ago, long before Mark Zuckerberg's girlfriend dumped him and he decided it would be cool and smart to give everyone a giant, rapidly scalable megaphone. And now, Pandora's box has effectively been opened, and we have the receipts to show how wildly impactful free online speech can really be. So how do we citizens of a country famous for how much it loves freedom, interpret freedom of speech in a changing and increasingly online world. Who gets to speak freely on the internet? Well, buckle up, because we're about to start thinking it through. Before we do, I have to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to our friends at Fundrise for being this season's presenting sponsor and making episodes like this one possible. And thanks to all of you, especially for the feedback on my last episode about homelessness. It was a powerful one, and it was made all the more special by how closely all of you listened and learned and thought and shared all of that with me. So thank you so much. Now, you know the drill. Nothing is off limits. Everything is on the table. Take it anywhere. And remember, thinking is cool. And so are you. If I told a blatant lie right now, what would you do? To which authority would you report me? If I said, Stanley Tucci is not attractive, a sentence we all know to be a flagrant mistruth, what would happen to me? Honestly, in my position, not a whole lot. Luckily for you, I consider two things to be core to who I am and what I believe. Number one, telling the truth is an enormous and important responsibility that I will never give up. And number two, Stanley Tucci is really hot. But I could get away with saying otherwise online. And that's mostly because of the First Amendment that I butchered in the first minute of this episode. Barring a few outlier circumstances, we are all given the freedom of speech the moment we're born in or become citizens of the United States of America. 
But freedom of anything, but especially of speech, not always absolute. Sometimes freedom is conditional, and sometimes those conditions are as necessary as they are complicated. Rarely have we seen such an obvious onslaught of what conditional freedom of expression looks like than we have over the last year. Our shared metamorphosis into beings as online as we are offline has been rapidly sped up by the pandemic. When we talk about expressing ourselves, we're talking not only about shouting in the proverbial town square, but also of expressing our thoughts to an audience of about 3 billion people online. For me, and for countless others, this metamorphosis begets a question. We have a decent idea of how to appropriately govern speech without muzzling speakers in real life, but what about online? What happens when our means of speech is a private capitalist company? How do we make rules that fit the modern information age? The time has come to ask ourselves an important question. Has the ability to speak freely made the internet the dumpster fire that it is, or was it always going to be a dumpster fire regardless of what the Constitution says? And perhaps more importantly, at the core of all of this, who gets to speak freely online? Of all the episodes I've published, this might be the most complicated. I have scoured the internet for days working on this one, reaching far back into my time in mock trial and my journalism courses, and believe it or not, my college admissions essay, if you want to know more about that, DM me. I've become more proficient in constitutional law and terms of use, and I'm confident enough to have an idea of an answer to that question, who gets to speak freely online. But you should prepare yourself now to think yourself into a pretzel on this one. Join me on this journey as we work to unravel the impact that some 230 years of free speech ideals have had on this little thing we call the internet. Let's jump in. My first thought when Donald Trump was deplatformed was, oh God, took him long enough. My second thought was, wait, this kind of feels like a slippery slope. And then my brain went haywire. It's hard to conceptualize removing the leader of the free world from the biggest platform because, well, it doesn't usually happen. This idea of deplatforming, deplatforming an outgoing United States president, deplatforming accounts for staging large-scale harassment campaigns against an actress in a Ghostbusters remake, this wasn't always how the free speech conversation went. So that's where we're starting today, understanding what deplatforming means in context. To get who can speak freely online, we have to get what free speech really means. It's never been simple to understand free speech, but it has been simpler than it is today. The First Amendment entitles us to freely express ourselves, and it keeps the government from censoring that expression. That's a key detail in understanding how we apply free speech principles to the internet, which we've been doing essentially since the dawn of the information age. Posting is speech, but there's more to unpack. When you have a question about free speech, you Google it. And when you Google it, it takes you to the American Civil Liberties Union. So I will let Vera Eidelman, who's a staff attorney for the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, explain this a little further. I'm curious as to how our interpretation and our understanding of the freedom of speech has changed since we've like applied these ideals to the internet. You know, when these ideals were first put forth, first published, first popularized, Facebook and Twitter were not a thing, obviously. So how do you think that our understanding of freedom of speech and of expression has changed because of the advent of the internet? So I think 
think one thing that's important to keep in mind when we're talking about free speech or free expression as protected by the First Amendment is that what that really is looking at is government conduct, government regulation. So the First Amendment is really about limiting what the government can do and enabling private speakers to speak freely. And I think that concept is still very much alive and well and critical when we're thinking about online speech. I know that some of this, um, a lot of what you're thinking about today and a lot of what people listening may be thinking about is how do private companies moderate content? How do private companies decide who gets to post on Facebook, who gets to tweet on Twitter, etc. But it's also really important to keep in mind that the government still is a very active censor online. Vera continued to tell me this. Can we apply the First Amendment legally to Facebook or to Google or to Twitter um, or to YouTube, which I know is part of Google, I think that the answer there is generally no. So generally, legally, the private platforms are protected by the First Amendment rather than constrained by it. Their choices about who to associate with, what speech to um, publicize or distribute as a general matter will be protected by the First Amendment. But that's not to say that normatively they should be shying away from or moving away from free speech principles. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting to work through here too. There's a difference between First Amendment law and requirements and then free expression or free speech principles and values and norms. There are two important learnings to keep in mind as we keep going today. The first is that there's a difference between a private company moderating content and a government infringing upon constitutional rights set forth in 1791. Admittedly, 1791 was a good year for free speech. Back then, we had slightly more obvious ideas of what it meant to express oneself freely. And then 1792 happened. My point is that for as long as there has been an idea of free speech, there has been ample reason to limit it for our safety and for the safety of our country. And that framework for tweaking free expression ideals to meet modern needs is the second important learning to keep in mind as we keep going today. Free speech, online or otherwise, is not absolute. This is from the New Republic. Quote, what is free speech? The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, perhaps the most explicit legal protection of the right to free speech in the entire world, doesn't say. It simply says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. It does not, as the saying goes, define its terms. End quote. Just 10 years after the Constitution and Bill of Rights were ratified, Congress tweaked them by passing the Sedition Act of 1798, criminalizing almost any criticism of the federal government. That Sedition Act eventually expired, and that's probably a good thing, but it illustrates an important point. Free speech isn't static. In 1919, for example, the Supreme Court case Shank versus the United States declared that, quote, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic, end quote. When speech creates, as that case predicated, clear and present danger, it is not protected. That's good for you and me. It means that people can't go around saying anything they want, anything that could put others in danger and claim free speech. Those norms were set forth a hundred years ago, but the values behind them ring as true today as they did in 1919. When speech breeds danger, it seeds any claim to protection. 
It's hard to argue with that logic, but it's easy to argue with our modern interpretation of that logic. Which brings us to deplatforming, or removing someone's ability to post in an online forum. Think about the word deplatform, and then think about how silly it would have sounded to us just a decade ago. We didn't even know the word then, and now it's a singular verb around which countless hours of debate have revolved. Why is that? As in many cases of arguing the morality of the internet, this one has quite a lot to do with former President Donald J. Trump. Of course, Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos were deplatformed before him, but Donald Trump really brought the concept to the mainstream. So what happened with Trump? Well, here's the ACLU's treatment of that very weird time in our shared history. Quote, prior to the January 6th attack, the platforms experimented with various responses to posts by Trump that violated their community standards, from simply leaving them up, to labeling them, to restricting their distribution. On and after January 6th, the platforms took action at the account level. Twitter permanently suspended Trump's account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. YouTube suspended his account indefinitely, applying a sanction that didn't appear to exist in its policies, also pursuant to the platform's incitement to violence policy, and has since said it would end the suspension when it determines the risk of violence has sufficiently fallen. Facebook initially also suspended Trump's accounts indefinitely, also without tethering the decision to an existing sanctions policy. In response, its oversight board ordered Facebook to impose a clear and proportionate penalty and to explain where it came from. Recently, Facebook announced that it would suspend Trump for two years until January 6, 2023, which, it should be noted, is shortly after the next midterm elections." End quote. We can all agree that shouting fire in a crowded theater when there is no such fire is bad. But what we can't seem to agree on is whether people who've been deplatformed like Donald Trump actually shouted fire. And to take it further, who gets to decide what counts as shouting fire? In this example, it was businesses, not the law. Businesses optimized for probably revenue more than anything. Businesses that had no doubt benefited from loud voices like Trump's or Alex Jones's. For a long time, platforms like Facebook and Twitter excused what could easily be labeled as harassment and threats from power users, many of whom call the cesspool in our nation's capital home. But in January, something shifted. It's important to note that we've almost gone noseblind to the persistent reek of government instability and online mudslinging. We're so used to it that we can no longer recognize how absolutely bananas the last several years have been. We've grown tragically accustomed to the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, and that's cost us our radar for bullshit. What we're living through right now are completely unbelievable circumstances. A sitting president nearly refused a peaceful transfer of power to the next administration. A truly nonsensical congresswoman from Georgia, <clears throat> Marjorie Taylor Greene, who does not have a medical degree, is saying that it's her opinion that vaccines don't work. This is the Twilight Zone. But it also is our reality, so we have no choice but to consider, with every ounce of thoughtfulness we can muster, who gets to speak freely online? How do we draw the lines? What equates to shouting fire on the internet when it kind of feels like everything is shouting fire on the internet? What counts as clear and present danger, that aforementioned line which we cannot cross online? Does it count as clear and present danger if your uncle falsely claims vaccines don't work? What about when Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene falsely claims vaccines don't work? Does it count as clear and present danger when your old college classmate says the January 6th Capitol insurrection was a spectacular showing of Americans opening a can of whoop-ass on the libs? 
What about if the sitting president tells an angry mob, we love you, you're very special, and then tweets, go home with love and in peace, remember this day forever? The point here is that all speech is not created equally. To understand who gets to speak freely online, we have to understand who gets to be amplified online. That's the crux of all of this. And we're going to go deeper with a fantastic guest in just a moment after a short break to hear from our friends at Fundrise. What keeps you up at night? Is it the memory of that time in sixth grade when you walked into an open locker and hit your head so hard that the nurse sent you home? Maybe the thought of how often your barista says, enjoy your coffee, and you say, you too. When I used to have trouble sleeping, I didn't count sheep. I counted relentlessly embarrassing moments and deep existential questions. I would usually start with something innocent, like, wow, been a while since I've driven a car. Then that would rapidly devolve into, should I buy a car? And then that would rapidly devolve into, is it even possible to buy a car right now given interest rates and oil prices and the chip shortage I keep reading about? When I got tired of panicking over things like climate change or political polarization, I would often turn to something like, will I ever own a home? And that typically sent me into a hearty spiral over student debt, crooked banks, rising sea levels, seller's markets, you know, the whole shebang. And all of a sudden, it's 3 a.m. Thankfully, I am sleeping much better these days. Of course, on occasion, I still flash back to every embarrassing thing I've ever said or done, but at least I can stop spiraling over real estate, thanks to Fundrise. Fundrise is the real estate investing platform that gets you investing in real estate across the country, no matter where you live. Fundrise makes it possible for anyone to start. The investment platform works to eliminate the inaccessibility that once relegated real estate investing to professional investors and older, more wealthy demographics. Fundrise has done this by creating a simple, low-cost way for anyone to get into the real estate game. For as little as $10, you can start an account today. Visit fundrise.com slash think, that's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash think to get started. Before you heard from Fundrise, I told you we were nearing the crux of, to quote myself, all of this. (laughs) And I mean it. The concept we're exploring now, reach as a component of speech, is the notion upon which this entire question of who gets to speak freely online hinges. Let's go deeper with Charlie Warzel, writer of the Galaxy Brain newsletter and celebrated tech commentator, and also one of my favorite online smart people. I mean, seriously, Charlie has the most incisive commentary on everything from big tech to working from home to COVID-related frustration. He's awesome. Charlie? What remains kind of unsaid in that is is the idea of distribution and ampl- amplification and reach right so um a, you know a good sort of frame for the the speech conversation that i see as pertain to facebook twitter youtube all these different platforms is this idea that you know it, it's not just organic these companies take different forms of speech and you know they amplify them algorithmically to different audiences. What you're seeing is not just like the raw nature of of everyone you know on Facebook and, you know, trying to reach you. And it's it's amplified in a sort of opaque way. And so I think that this idea of reach is is crucial because it it's it's what the, the platforms actually control. And it is unnatural in the sense of I think giving everyone a platform to speak is is much more natural than the idea that you know 
the most incendiary voices are going to end up being the loudest because, you know, a certain proprietary uh, algorithms make make that so. So I think that that's like a very helpful way to frame the conversation because the tech companies tend to hide behind that, right? And just say like, you know, we're, we're giving everyone equal access, which is true, uh, but they're not treating every voice the same. We could call it a day right here and say that we should all be able to speak freely, but tech leaders should be more thoughtful in terms of who they amplify. But as you and I both know, tech leaders are rarely thoughtful in the ways we want them to be. So let's take it upon ourselves to be thoughtful for them, huh? I've always tried to be as honest with you as possible in this show. It's my job to go out, research, report, interview, reflect, and then come to you with a fully formed story that helps to illustrate how I reach my own conclusions on the issue at hand. In the case of free speech online, trying to be thoughtful has never been harder. My brain is a swirling mess of thoughts and hypotheticals and ideas and morals, and I really don't know how to organize all of it. So instead of trying to tie this impossible question up in a pretty bow, I'm gonna lay it all out on the table for you and with you. And I'm not gonna use a script while I do it. For the next few minutes of the episode, I'm working from an outline and we're gonna just think this through together. So the first big thought that I can't get out of my head when I'm trying to consider who gets to speak freely online is this idea that maybe we shouldn't stop anyone from speaking freely online. It doesn't really sit right with me to think that we take away the platform, the voice from somebody. Um, And I I remember talking about this with Vera, so I'm gonna pause here and uh, let you hear what she said about it. Basically, someone doesn't get to speak online. This person no longer gets to exist as a voice, as a speaker, as a thinker in the online universe. And sure, sometimes that might feel great. Sometimes we might think, oh, that person, the things they were saying were so hateful. The things they were saying were so upsetting. I so disagree with them. I don't want to have to see what they have to say. Um, But I think that that power is so enormous. When we're talking about a pretty limited set of social media platforms, I should also say. So I think a lot of my own views on this depend on the size and the role of the platform. But those that are acting as gatekeepers, that are really deciding who gets to exist as a thinking being, as a speaking being online, there I do have a lot of... um, It gives me pause when those companies decide to entirely remove someone, to entirely shut down an account to entirely remove certain pieces of content. That's not to say that those things have to be heralded or easy to find even, but they certainly, I think, should be able to exist online so that we can all develop our thinking, so that we can all respond to each other and say we don't agree. Um, I think that those values, for me, are invoked when we're thinking about a pretty limited but powerful set of gatekeepers, even if the law technically does not apply. I don't think that it's the right choice to just take away everybody's uh, idea of, of what a platform is. I mean, imagine if we told people they couldn't speak in public to another person, it would be really, really troubling. And it would be troubling for a reason. I don't think that taking away a platform is the way we make people less assholey on the internet. I think, in fact, it probably makes them more argumentative. And I think as we become increasingly online, taking away that platform becomes more and more troubling because we're taking away one of the major components of somebody's voice, that big kind of like archetypical idea of what a voice is. If we take away online, we're taking away a big chunk of that. So that's my first big idea. 
The second has to do with standards, um, how, how we hold people to standards and, and where we draw the line for what counts as standards and, and principles and values online. Do we hold Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump, but also Antifa, but also Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? Do we hold all of these people to a different standard than everybody else because they have a different platform? And I think the answer is yes, but also the platforms have a part in this. I mean, remember when they refused to take down misinformation because they labeled it as newsworthy, that even if it was false, it was newsworthy, so it was permitted to stay up. I just think maybe that's not the answer, but there also is this really complicated part of the story when it comes to public figures. When you have that blue check mark, are you held to a different standard? I think that you should be, but when we think about the examples of people who have been deplatformed, at least more famously in the last couple of years, there's a very obvious party line here. It's Marjorie Taylor Greene on Twitter, Donald Trump on almost everything. Rand Paul was uh, barred from YouTube for a bit. Alex Jones, basically everywhere else. A lot of these are conservative and ultra conservative voices. And I think that I'd be remiss not to mention that a lot of times the big tech platforms are labeled as liberal companies. They are based in California. They tend to have pretty quote unquote woke ideals. And it's not fair for me to sit here as you guys know, as a liberal and not recognize that it's typically not the people I would most associate with who are being deplatformed. Uh, this is a liberal versus conservative kind of thing. It doesn't affect the two parties in the same ways. And we need to be honest with ourselves about that because this does disproportionately affect the right. And then the third point that I really want to talk about when I'm considering who gets to speak freely online is how we draw the line between what is just kind of everyday run-of-the-mill content and what is content that actually is incredibly newsworthy, true or not. Um, you know, people use the internet to post TikToks about your crush, right? But also to suggest that an insurrection on our nation's capital was a, a lovable endeavor. These are two very, very different ways of using the internet. And I think the difficulty in all of this is trying to parse out that difference at scale. When you think about how huge Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, how huge all of these platforms are, they're so enormous that how are we expected to do that parsing? How are we expected to figure out what's good and bad or true and false when there's just so much content at any given moment? I think that's going to be one of the big difficulties of this lifetime. That's the content moderation difficulty, but it of course is, is inextricably tied to the First Amendment. All right. There you have it. My, my public rumination on free speech online, uh, our public rumination on free speech online. We started today with one very big question. Who gets to speak freely online? The answer, unsurprisingly, at least so far, is I'm not quite sure yet. But the broad, potentially also unanswerable sub-question in all of this is as follows. Should speech truly be free? Can we apply an absolutist set of free expression ideals to the internet world? Those who say yes, free speech can be an absolute freedom often say so for these reasons. Free speech, regardless of who utters it and where and how, protects the voices and political rights of everyday people from the, at times, oppressive power of the government. They might also tell you that deplatforming people in the modern context has been referred to as a censorship orgy or a move to one party control of information distribution or the ambition of big tech is to utterly erase you from modern existence. Now, those who say no, free speech cannot be an absolute freedom often say so for these reasons. 
Deplatforming and other stark content moderation typically only happens in response to equally troubling threats. You're not going to be censored for saying that Joe's has better pizza than Bleecker Street. The answer to that question, should speech be truly, absolutely free, it's a pretty fine line, and I'm not going to pretend to know what the perfect solution is, but at some point, we're going to have to take a stand. We're going to have to decide what counts as freedom of expression and what counts as dangerous, violent speech. The next question I can't stop pondering is who is the we in that scenario? Who gets to or has to decide? Governing bodies that wrote the First Amendment? Social media platforms on which people are speaking? The people themselves? Let's take a short break to hear from our friends at MassCon before we get to the bottom of it, because honestly, you're going to need a drink or two after this episode is through. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a night filled with too much cheap wine will, in fact, bring you to your knees the next day. Another truth we can all acknowledge? We overcomplicate good wine. There are so many weird terms and strange descriptions that you've got to learn in order to start drinking the stuff that won't leave you begging your roommate for her last Advil. You've got to understand words like aeration and tannins and sulfites and skin contact. I've studied some of the vocab. Sulfites are naturally occurring in wine and sometimes are added to preserve freshness. Tannins are what make your mouth feel dry when you drink wine. And aeration is the process of exposing the wine to air so it will oxidize and taste better. You only want to aerate red wines. Oh, and when people say skin contact, they're talking about orange wine. Mind out of the gutter. Some of this knowledge stems from the fact that I am well into the late part of my mid to late 20s, but most of it is care of Massacon, the genius Napa Valley winery behind the bottles I truly cannot get enough of. Massacon wines are delicious, low in calories, and affordably priced, but best of all, their wine labels are written simply so that anyone can understand what they're drinking, even if they spent a good chunk of their early 20s drinking wine from a box. The Massacon team specifically created its wine labels to be readable and clear, replacing fancy words with simple sentences about what to pair the wine with or what smells to expect from each sip. It's good wine made easy. All the delicious experience and none of the headaches. Interested in giving Massacon a try? You can purchase bottles online at the Massacon website, M-A-S-S-I-C-A-N.com, that's Massacon.com, or you can pick up a bottle at your local fine wine shop and select Whole Foods nationwide. Before you heard from Massacon, we were talking about, and again, one of my favorite words, responsibility. Uh, Voice crack, excuse me. Responsibility. Who gets to decide what counts as freedom of expression and what counts as dangerous, violent speech? The typical roster of potential answers is users, regulators, or platforms. Let's go through these, but first with a little context. So, in the United States, free speech might be part of what we consider the Bill of Rights. But what I'm thinking is this. Free speech is not a right. It is a value, and even more than that, it is a privilege. It's something we've been graciously given for no reason other than, in most of our cases, being born here. We get to say what we want, to speak out in protest, to believe what we choose to believe, and to do it publicly because a very long time ago our forebears made it so. But free reach is neither a right nor a privilege. It's a responsibility. And it's one that our framers of the Constitution might have never seen coming. They've had their faults, I say as a woman who's only been legally permitted to vote for a few generations now. But how could they have known what today would look like? How could they have known that all 330 million of us Americans would be handed megaphones designed to put us on our worst behavior? They just wouldn't know. 
And for that reason, we can't look to the laws and standards set in 1791 to govern 2021. The Bill of Rights is only as good as our interpretation of those rights. Today, we've misinterpreted the idea of free expression, viewing it not as a privilege, but as cover to say anything at any cost. It's in no small part led us to where we are today. Logging on is in many ways opting into a giant engulfing dumpster fire. It's bad out there and I'm not the first to tell ya. But I do think it can get better. That is, if we want it to. If we, whoever we are, take responsibility. Earlier this morning, over our customary breakfast of overnight oats with berries and nut butter, my dating app boyfriend and I were talking about what free speech means today. I was struggling to think through my own position, given my penchant for at times very vocal online criticism of some of this country's most powerful people. If not for the First Amendment, I might be targeted for publicly hexing Mark Zuckerberg this often. But I recognize that my decision to do said hexing is both one, punching up, and two, based in fact. I'm not saying anything on this podcast that isn't the result of my own research and interviews and deep, deep reflection, because I know my responsibility as someone with a platform. As my dating app boyfriend pushed me to think about how fraught that makes my relationship with free speech, I realized something, or more accurately, I questioned something that I've been unable to stop thinking about since it first crossed my mind. Do I even believe in anything anymore, or am I just an amalgamation of the inflammatory hot takes I see online? The algorithm, which rewards that inflammation and gives virality to anyone willing to say something outrageous, true or not, that algorithm has shaped us, all of us. It's hard to articulate how that transforms people because it transforms everyone a little bit differently. But there's, you know, there's multiple ways to, to just think about that from the sense of an average person, you know, tr- becoming sort of a, a creator or a publisher or, you know, a poster and and trying to access that audience in some way, you know, like some people are constantly striving, right? They're just trying to tap the algorithm to, you know, to give it what it wants so that they can gain access to that sort of unprecedented level of virality and audience and attention, that pool of attention. As our internet selves and our real life selves become one and the same every single day, we're as much products of these algorithms as the algorithms are products of us. We've always liked inflammatory speech. I mean, talking shit and gossiping, it's fun for a reason. But in the era of these massive dopamine rushes every time something you do takes off online, I wonder if we're leaning too heavily into inflammation. Are we spewing hot takes just for the sake of it? I don't think so. At least, not all of us. But it's an important idea to note. The internet and the platforms that make it up are inextricably linked to us. To ourselves. As we've talked about before, it's really hard to not be online today. The influence of our online existence is heavy on our real-world selves. We have to sort of, you know, will these spaces a little bit into, you know, into being in the way that we want want them to be. Um, We are, you know, ultimately sending lots of signals uh, to these platforms, you know, all of us, about what we like and dislike. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think a lot of times we're sending, we're sending signals that, you know, ultimately make us a little bit miserable. So the responsibility in some ways falls upon us. 
it's our responsibility to not inflame for the sake of it in real life just because that's what works online. We run the risk of destroying civility should we apply the logic of the internet's algorithmic amplification to our real-world selves. Imagine if you started every sentence with, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? But at the same time, we as humankind are complex, rarely homogenous, a ragtag group to expect that we, as in we billions of internet users, can find consensus and self-regulate online? Never gonna happen. Because of that, we have to hold platforms to higher standards. Tech platforms have created the monster of online speech and the responsibility to tame it falls to them. I'm tired of Mark Zuckerberg telling the world he's not the arbiter of truth, and it's clear he's not giving that up anytime soon. So instead of asking Zuck and his peers to be the arbiters of truth, I instead ask them to be the arbiters of reach. I don't ask our technocrats to tell me what's true and what's not, but I do ask them to stop rewarding what's said only in the heat of passion and the pursuit of virality. People like Mark Zuckerberg have more power than they let on. For years, Zuck refused to take action against Holocaust deniers on his platform, despite the fact that he openly loathed their position as a Jewish man and a person with a brain. For too long, he failed to acknowledge the difference between false and dangerous. In another example cited by Vox, the Pizzagate theory claiming that Democratic politicians were running a child sex ring from a DC pizza shop was an absurd conspiracy but it led to someone showing up at the pizza shop with a rifle. We cannot permit that to happen again. Rewrite your code, do better. Free speech, not going anywhere, at least not in this lifetime, but free reach can change and should change. People, they don't change unless they're conditioned to. The laws rarely change, though they should be tweaked to better reflect modern free speech values in an online world as we know they're capable of doing. The algorithms, the platforms behind them, they have to be the ones to change. Freedom of speech should not be eradicated, and the decision to eradicate or not should not be up to the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. They can't rewrite the Constitution, but they can rewrite their code. Reach. That is something we should ask our technocrats to consider more thoughtfully. We can ask them not to muzzle or silence us, but to be more considerate about which of us gets the bigger megaphone. They can better identify clear and present danger, just as we have for a century now, and when they do, they can stomp it out immediately. No more flagging, no more identifying as potentially false but newsworthy. They can control how many impressionable eyeballs see dangerous content. They can preserve political speech and healthy debate and dissent without amplifying obvious, flagrant examples of shouting fire online. And in the rare cases they exhibit it, platform responsibility works. According to the New York Times' examination of Donald Trump's 10 most popular written statements containing election misinformation, before he was banned from most social platforms, Trump's posts garnered 22.1 million likes and shares. After the ban, it was more like 1.3 million likes and shares across Twitter and Facebook. If we want to tamp down on dangerous or potentially false speech, all we have to do is tweak the systems that amplify that speech. We might not ever be able to solve misinformation or disinformation or, frankly, stupidity, but we can stop that kind of speech from exacting influence on the masses. It starts with the platforms that gave those words voice in the first place. I know the common retorts to the submission that tech should take more responsibility. They're liberals. We can't trust them. They're capitalists. We can't trust them. They're just vectors for technological process. We can't expect morality of them. On that last one especially... 
I gotta say something. And I have to reference a piece that Charlie Warzel wrote in August, the piece that actually inspired this episode to do it. Here's a quote from Charlie's piece. Quote, Technology isn't good or bad, it just is. This is a standard line from the tech industry. They are arguing that their products are mostly neutral. Technology companies make tools, and the tools end up in the hands of countless people who will all use the tools as they see fit. Some will do great things, and others will do bad things. Instagram's Adam Mosseri does argue that they are trying to mitigate the bad things, but frankly, he and the company are destined to fall short if they truly believe that technology isn't good or bad, it just is, end quote. What a sad and uncreative excuse for a failure to protect your users. It's the same logic, as Charlie pointed out in that piece, as guns don't kill people, people kill people. Yes, and still, perfectly reasonable people think we shouldn't enable anyone suffering from mental illness or rage or derangement to buy an automatic weapon. The same can and should be said for social media. We cannot enable abusers and spreaders of misinformation and those who would foment violence with the biggest of megaphones. I'll reference the work of the writer Jillian York. Quote, despite what Senator Ted Cruz keeps repeating, there is nothing requiring these platforms to be neutral, nor should there be. If Facebook wants to boot Trump or photos of breastfeeding mothers, that's the company's prerogative, end quote. Tech already exhibits morality. It's time they start caring about the right moral causes. I started this episode by admitting that I'm not sure a conclusion on free speech was completely possible. Despite the last half hour or so that we have spent together, the idea of who gets to speak freely online still feels a little nebulous and a little complicated. But I do think we're getting closer to an answer. I think we're better armed to recognize the nuance in all of this. We're better equipped to have, as Charlie calls them, second-order conversations. What do we do? Well, you know, there's the idea of, of just completely deplatforming, or there's the looking at the speech from the side of, of reach, right? And saying, okay, well, you know, maybe maybe it's about the, the reach they get. They have access to, uh, to these tools, but they don't have access to that unlimited pool of attention because they're not following, you know, the spirit of the of the of the platform and that they're not adhering to you know the the rules of the road and debate in in, in that way in good faith um you know that's like the second order conversation and and so i think you know i think we're in the process of of having you know some of that second order conversation now and then there will be a, a third order to it and then there, you know it'll it'll keep getting more and more sophisticated as we as we you know have success and also as we as we fail here this isn't a conversation with a beginning middle and end this is a new state of being a new understanding of what it means to speak freely as humans who live both online and off when abolitionist frederick Douglass characterized free speech as the dread of tyrants in 1860 he wasn't referring to Pizzagate or to proven false claims of election interference or to cyberbullying. He was speaking of free speech in its purest form, the freedom to speak for what is right. Not the freedom to say anything, true or not, just to go viral on the internet. If technology is a tool that can be wielded for good or for evil, it's time we start demanding good. It's time we start recognizing the difference between speech and reach and holding our tech leaders to it. I think that starts with getting a little more comfortable with our report and block trigger fingers. I know it's unlikely I'll get a private audience with Mark Zuckerberg anytime soon, but I also know that I have the freedom as a user to report falsities of climate deniers and racists I see online. 
the start of this episode, I told you I was nearing an answer to a question, who gets to speak freely online? My answer is everyone. I think we should, in most cases, because again, I don't want to overgeneralize, be free to express ourselves in truth online. But that enormous privilege to express ourselves freely comes with responsibility. Responsibility to hold Facebook and Twitter and Instagram accountable. Responsibility to ignore the siren song of viral hot takes that contribute nothing important. And responsibility to know that freedom of expression means nothing without thoughtfulness. So take some time today to consider, what does it mean to freely express yourself online? How have the imperfections of our perception of free speech principles played out along party lines, generational lines, even platform lines? Do you ever think about how the algorithm might shape your version of reality? Does clear and present danger look different from user to user? If so, how often are you consuming content from the other side of the conversation? What does free speech online look like to you? As always, I'm eager to hear how your conversations go. You know where to find me. Remember, thinking is cool, and so are you. I'm Kinsey Grant, and I'll see you next time. Mm